you have to be willing to make mistakes and you really have to look at what your motive is. If you're out here to be the most popular or the most well-known, there's there's just so there's so much that is to lose when it comes to talking about race, but the reality is people of color are losing their lives. And whatever word you're using for why you don't want to talk, and usually that word is discomfort or lack of knowledge or scared or fearful, none of that compares to the fear and discomfort and the really life-altering effects of if this work isn't done. The, the lives and the bodies of people of color are at stake. That was Rachel Cargill, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 148. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. So on this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic answers, and I can't give you any miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plans for anything. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm honestly so over the quick fix approach, and my guess is that maybe you are too. Maybe that's even why you're here. So no, that's not what this show's about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep. We go into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from just telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and always will be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. When you get over to Patreon, you'll see our current funding goal. And when we reach that goal, it means that every single person who works on this show will get paid. That includes me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, as well as every single guest who comes onto the show. Because that's my vision, for each of our guests to be paid for the time, energy, honesty, care, and emotional labor that they bring to these conversations. The budget won't be huge to start with and will hopefully continue to grow over time, but higher rates will always be paid to our guests of color as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. Being able to pay all our guests has been a big dream of mine for a while now, because as you've probably heard me say before, I believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, then it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio even if it's definitely not the norm in the podcast industry. So please know that when you help to fund this show, you're using your money as a vote for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women, and you're voting to pay those folks for the entertainment and education that they so expertly provide. When you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that these voices deserve to be heard and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. 
As a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time, which, oh man, if you think that it gets vulnerable and honest on the podcast, just wait till you start getting my emails. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for Real Talk Live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profits are donated to social justice organizations, such as Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution to this show as well. Over on Patreon, you'll also see that there are currently three different funding levels, an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Rachel Elizabeth Cargill. Rachel is an Ohio-born writer and lecturer. Her activist and academic work are rooted in providing intellectual discourse, tools, and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. With a thriving social media community of over 115,000 people, Rachel Guide's conversation encourages critical thinking and nurtures meaningful engagement with folks all over the world. Her public lecture, Unpacking White Feminism, explores the history of feminism through the lens of race, revealing the problematic effects that white-centered activism has had on the past and present of the feminist movement, and sharing action items that you can take to be more intentional and inclusive in your feminism. You can find more of Rachel's writing in her monthly column on harpersbazaar.com, and her work has also been featured on USA Today, Teen Vogue, Pop Sugar, Afropunk, Essence, Huffington Post, and Refinery29. In this episode, Rachel talks about white feminism, what it is, why it's problematic, and what we can do to make our feminism truly intersectional. That's one of the things that I love the most about Rachel's work, the fact that it's focused on taking action and doing the work of being anti-racist. And in this conversation, she shares some necessary action steps, as well as recommendations for other leaders whose work we should be following and learning from. Rachel's work has been incredibly impactful for me personally over the past year, and I feel super grateful to have had this conversation with her. I hope that you get as much out of it as I did. All of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are rolling. Rachel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So set the scene for us. Tell me where you're sitting, where in the world you are. Describe what's going on right now. I'm in a very, very cold New York City, and I'm actually at a co-working space in Soho, so it's a little noisy in the background. I thought this would be ideal, but everyone everyone showed up to this one space at one time, so. <laughs> but it's cozy. It's actually warm in here, so I'm grateful at least for that. Yeah. You're not originally from New York, right? No, I'm from Ohio, from Akron, Ohio, actually. LeBron James' hometown as well. Good things That's, come out of Akron. <laughs> good things. You and LeBron, those are the things. That yeah. Okay. Um, I can't say that I've been to Akron, but I grew up in New York City, so I'm familiar with oh. where you are. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I couldn't even imagine growing up here. It's, there's so much happening, but I, but New York City people are the best, so you're in that group. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. I'll take it. I, I did nothing to earn that, but I'll take it. Tell me something that's bringing you a lot of joy lately. Ooh. Okay. What's bringing me a lot of joy lately is I don't, well, you're here in New York. So you know, those bra places, it's like a coffee shop, but they just sell bra. 
I did not know that. Well, so I mean, I don't live in New York anymore, but maybe, maybe oh, the broth places okay. have uh, come up in my absence. Tell me all about the broth places. Yes, yes it's a newish thing, but I'm absolutely obsessed and I'm literally sipping on a cup of it right now. So it's like, it's literally like a coffee shop, except you go in and you choose which kind of broth they have, like chicken broth and beef and vegetable. And then you can choose additions. So I usually put rosemary and ginger and lemon, but today I got a little bit of turmeric and ginger and you, and it, and they just dish it out in coffee cups and I'm absolutely obsessed and I've gotten it every single day for the last week and a half. That's amazing. I love hearing <laughs> what people are obsessed. I'm like an obsessive person like that too. Like I find something and like, I love this and it's the mm-hmm. only thing that I want until I don't want it anymore, basically. So. Exactly. Yeah. So right now broth is who I am now yeah. and it will be that way probably until the end of the winter, but it is so delicious and it, it's so filling. And I just feel like I'm doing good things for my body by just sipping on broth. I love, it. I love that you said, this is who I am now. Change your business cards, Rachel Cargill, <laughs> all broth all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> so something that I've been wanting to ask you about, I think I saw you mention it on Instagram once in like a random facts about you intro type post was I think you said last year that you took a five-month solo international trip, and I would love to hear the story of what led to that. Yeah, I did take a five-month solo international trip, and it was amazing, and I'm so glad I did it. What led to it is that, well, of course, I think everyone wants to travel, so it was always kind of a dream of mine. But at the time, I was a nanny for um, a family, and it just wasn't working out, and it got to the point where we just like, it was obvious that I wasn't going to be working for them anymore. And so I just kind of like jumped to it. I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And then I bought a one-way ticket to Hawaii. Um, I caught up a friend and I was like, Hey, can I stay with you for a few days? I think I'm going to start traveling for a while. And it started. And so I left New York city and my first stop was Hawaii. And I was in Hawaii for a few weeks and what the whole itinerary ended up looking like, because I hadn't planned anything out in particular. I think I probably knew I was going to do it for about probably three weeks before I actually got on a plane and left. But I went to Hawaii and then I went to Phoenix, Arizona, and I stayed in the desert for a month and that was absolutely dreamy. And then I went to Puerto Rico and then I went over to Japan and I was in Tokyo for a while. Osaka. And then I went down to these islands. They're called the Goto Islands. It was about an eight-hour ferry ride off the coast of Nagasaki. I stayed there with a a boy, like a fling from college. (laughs) And I stayed there with him for a month because he was living there. And then I ended up going to Thailand. And I was in Bangkok and Phuket for another month. And then I headed home. But yeah, it was a dreamy, a very dreamy trip. So uh, my mind latched onto when you said that you basically didn't plan it and you just kind of went like (laughs) that's making me feel both really excited and really anxious. (laughs) Do you feel like that's how you are in your life in general? Are you not a big planner? Are you a spontaneous person? Oh, I'm so spontaneous and I'm such a a risk taker. And so, um, yeah, that just totally made sense. I mean, I did a little bit of preparation, so I didn't have any money at the time. And so what I did was I kind of reached out to my network and I said, Hey, I can write for you or I'll do your social media or I'll, I don't know. I said, so I I was ghostwriting for someone's blog. And I said, I'm taking a few clients while I travel the world. And people were so excited to support me. I ended up getting four clients like immediately. And so I put them on like alternating pay. Like, so I got paid by one person per week. So I was continuously bringing money in while I was traveling and it worked out. 
Yeah, that's brilliant. I also love how that falls under the umbrella of you'll figure it out, right? It's like my, oh, this is my new sure. favorite sentence. I, I've also done a lot of solo travel, particularly solo backpacking. It's funny that you mentioned Arizona mm-hmm. last year. I did um, the 800 mile Arizona trail by myself. Mm-hmm. And cool. yeah, I get a lot of questions from women and I'm sure maybe you do too, just sort of like tips or advice for people who specifically, specifically women who want to travel solo, but feel afraid to do so. What would you say? Yeah, I think it's funny because I don't think traveling's any less safe than anything else we do. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is coming from a girl who moved from like Ohio to New York. I didn't know anyone. And so I, I would say that it's not any less safe. And as long as you trust your instinct, like I really trust myself to make smart decisions and to do smart things. So just trusting yourself that if you do happen to get into a situation that might be sketchy or might be a little scary, you'll figure it out. Like I trust my ability to figure things out. And like you said, once we get into those spaces, there were some hard times where I was traveling. I was, I remember being in Tokyo with like $20 to my name, like, hmm, wonder how I'm going to leave the country <laughs> and just kind of being create. I trust my creativity. I trust my, I trust my innovation and my ability to figure things out. So I think a lot of it has a lot more to do with trusting yourself than the practical safety of traveling, because I don't think we're any more or less safe in any particular place in the world. Yeah. I love that. I think that's so well said. There's, I mean, I think a lot of it is maybe the illusion of safety that comes from being in a comfortable circumstance, but yeah, I think you're right. It's like trust, Hey, I'm smart and capable woman and I can figure it out or I can trust my instincts. Like you said, yeah, Yeah. that's, that's so good. I've everywhere that you went, what's the place that you'd most love to return to and spend some more time? Uh, I can't wait to get back to Japan again. I can't get there quick enough. I specifically love the countryside. Um, like I said, being in those islands where it was kind of, it was very much so like classic Japan and the people and the scenery and the, just everything about the energy there was just so wonderful. And I think that Japan will forever be a place that I travel to. Mm, yeah. I've never been, but it's on my very long list of everywhere <laughs> that I want to go. Yes. What's something that you learned about yourself through that experience, through that trip? One of the biggest things I learned is how to be sad and okay. I think I hit some bouts of depression while I was traveling. And usually when I was home and I was sad, you know, like I would be able to go cry to my mom or whatever tools or I should, yeah, whatever it was that I was doing to be able to feel better. And while I was traveling, I just didn't always have that immediate access to the soothing of someone else. And so I really worked on self-soothing, you know, figuring out, what is it that I'm actually sad about? What is it, you know, am I lonely right now? Am I frustrated right now? What, where was the sadness coming from? And really being able to sit with it wherever I was in the world and say, okay, I'm sad right now and I'm allowed to be sad and my feelings are valid and this will pass. And so just kind of learning to exist with sadness while I was traveling was one of the biggest things that I was able to learn from while I was there and then also bring back home. So now um, when I do dip into bouts of sadness or depression, I can really sit with it without being fearful of it and just say, okay, this is another human experience and really tapping into the things that I learned about my sadness and the different kinds of sadness that happened to me as a woman, as a black woman, and tap into those tools that I kind of picked up while I was traveling. Mm, I've never heard anyone really speak to this before. And I can relate so much. I mean, going back to that, that solo backpacking trip that I did, 
I would go three, four, up to five and a half days without seeing any other humans, which as an extrovert and someone who hosts a podcast and I need people to listen to my nonsense. And like, it was (laughs) like five days doesn't sound like a lot, but it was the loneliest, saddest experience that I've ever had. And I think so much about that trip of like learning how to be lonely and sit with that, like you said, learning how to be sad. And then also learning how to be, this is going to sound silly maybe, but my own best friend, the things that I would rely on other friends for like, okay, if there's no one else out here, how can I be a good friend to myself? And then to be able to take that, like you said, back into everyday life. Like, I think that's so much of what I love about travel or about adventure or doing that is like, it's really an acute growing experience a lot of times. And then to be able to pull that out and say, okay, I don't have to be traveling in order to be a good friend to myself. Like I can do this in my office, in my living room, you know, whatever. So I, I love that that was your experience too. Yeah, I love that. It was very, exactly what you said, being able to be in situations where I usually would be able to just call a friend who would come over and make me feel better. Just being able to do that for myself was such a needed lesson. I'm sure that I'll use for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So something that you, one of the little things that you do on Instagram that I love so much is your Friday morning latte initiative. I guess that's what I think of it as. (laughs) Will you describe what that is and why you do it? Yeah, well, it's, come to be called Friend Care Friday, hashtag Friend Care Friday. And it started just when it was, I made the post a while ago. So it's really funny. So on my Instagram, oftentimes there'll be these word posts that are really just copied from my Facebook. And sometimes I'll go back like years into my Facebook to try to find something that I find value in and share. And this was one of them. This wasn't something that like I came up with recently. I think I wrote it in December of 2006. 17, I believe. So it wasn't something that I had written recently, but I reposted it. And I remember when I originally made the post, it was because I just really wanted to remind people to show appreciation to our friends. Cause I, I, I had, uh, I was living, when I was living in DC, I had a really great group of friends and then we all split up. And one of the ways that I kind of appreciated them when we hadn't seen each other for months was just to send them coffee on me, $5 in their Venmo. And it was just something that everyone's reactions were always like, oh my gosh, Rachel, this is so sweet and the best idea. And so I kind of put it out there that everyone should be doing this. It's not hard. It's $5 if it's something that you can afford. And it's a really simple, but very intentional way to tell someone you're thinking about them. And then I added on, you know, tell them you're proud of them, tell them whatever it is that you know they need to hear to feel appreciated. So I did that one Friday and it got so much engagement from people telling me the stories of who they sent it to and what their reactions were. And it was just so cool and so much fun. And so I started to do it every single Friday. And now it's like a tradition and it's my favorite thing to be able to post it. And then I encourage people in the comments to share with me their stories of who they shared it with and what the exchange was and how it went. And I just, it's just so, it's like just a little like ball of joy under that, <laughs> under that post every Friday. No, I, I love it so much. It makes me smile. I like find myself looking forward to it on Fridays too. I love reading the comments that other people post yeah. and just this idea of like taking five or 10 bucks, if that's something that you can afford. And like you said, PayPal, Venmo, sending it to a friend just with a note of, Hey, your coffee's on me or this, or you're doing great. Or like, it's, it seems like such a small thing, but especially too for like longer distance friendships where you maybe don't have the opportunity to do that in person the same way that you would if you lived in the same town. There's just something like really lovely about simple ways that are still powerful to invest in each other and like in those relationships. 
Yeah. And the truth is that people can use the money however they'd like. <laughs> and which is also, which also is something I love about it is that like, there's all this stigma around money and that it's bad and what it is and how it's supposed to be used, but we all need money and we all need to use it in different ways. And it's not always as simple as just giving someone a gift. And so I just also really love the idea of saying, Hey, here's cash and I'm investing it into whatever it is that you as my friend need. Yeah. I also like that idea too of the permission slip as the recipient to spend the money on whatever you do want to invest in or what it's going to make you happy or this. I don't know. I think sometimes people, maybe this is a a gendered problem. I don't know, but like have a hard time investing in themselves or, oh, I shouldn't spend $10 or $20 on this thing, or this is frivolous. Or like, there's just something about it being a gift of, oh, like maybe I could buy this little book and it would bring me joy or, you know, whatever it is that I, I just think that there's something nice on the receiving end of that too. It's like, it's a nudge to do something nice for yourself, like from someone who for loves sure. you. Perfect. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a perfect description of it. So on the subject of money, I know at the time of this recording, you have a goal, a fundraising goal of raising, I think it's $100,000 to create a fund to pay for therapy for Black women and girls. And I would love for you to tell me the story of how that fundraiser came to be. Yeah, I'm so excited. The fundraising has been going so well. So many people are involved. We are currently at over $80,000 in just the last nine days of fundraising. And I started this, well, I did it for my 30th birthday. So I turned 30 in late November and I wanted to do something that would be a big, bold way to celebrate what womanhood has looked like for me and meant for me in my 20s. And one of the biggest parts of my growth and my stability has been going to therapy. And it's that it's been the same way for my friends as well. So like me and my girlfriends, when we go to lunch, we love asking each other, like, how are things with your therapist? What are you and your therapist talking about? And it's been so life-changing to know that I have kind of the support of a professional plus the encouragement of maintaining my mental health with my friends. And I just wish so much that everyone had that. And so in particular, Black women and girls are in our marginalized communities. Oftentimes we don't have access to therapy or there's a stigma around what therapy means for someone. So often it's, it's, it's just looked at in a negative way as though you can't manage things yourself or there's just some type of brokenness. And so I also wanted to be able to use my influence to show that therapy is needed and therapy is necessary. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with being intentional and investing in your own mental health and the mental health of people around you, especially us women and girls in the black community, because when we are supported mentally, we're able to pour that into our families and our communities. And we know that women are often kind of the bedrock of families and communities as a whole. So yeah, so I decided for my 30th birthday, I was going to do a fundraiser. And I think I started it. I said my goal, my original goal was 10,000. And when I put it out, I think with it, I think I raised 10,000 within like 24 hours. And I was like, oh, whoa, we can push this. We can do more. (laughs) So I upped it to 100,000 and we are almost there. And I'm so excited for this incredible pouring in from my followers and this community to these women and girls who definitely deserve this type of care. And the thing I love about this fundraiser, I think, is that it's so grassroots. It's obviously just it, there's no organizations involved in how it's going to look on my end. I'm just the money that we receive. I'm literally taking the information from the Black women and girls who are saying, yes, I'd love the support. I ask them, you know, who is your therapist? What's their phone number? And I just call everyone's therapist and say, hey, I want to put 
so much money on the books for this individual person. And so it's going directly to the therapist and directly to the person asking for it on their books to begin taking or continuing on in the therapy that they need. And it's just this beautiful, I've been calling it a beautiful community-led redistribution of wealth. And I'm really proud of how it's gone so far. Yeah, there's there's so much in there that I, I want to underline. I mean, especially your willingness to talk about just how therapy has benefited you, because I can say absolutely the same for me. It's funny. My close friends are so used to me starting sentences with, well, Jessica says, Jessica's my therapist. (laughs) So like just normalizing that in your social group, I think is so important too, to, like you said, remove the stigma of, you know, therapy is for, you know, people who are in a rock bottom situation. And that might be true, but also that's not the only situation in which therapy can be helpful. Right. And so being able to uh, like have the resources to afford and have access to that kind of care, like that's a privilege and that's not something that everyone has access to. And I just, I love what you called it a redistribution of wealth. And um, so I, yeah, I, I, as soon as I saw it, I was like, that's incredible. So for people mm-hmm. who are listening, because I know that your goal was to raise the money by the end of November for your birthday, but that mm-hmm. it's, it's when we, before we started recording, you said it was going to be an ongoing thing too. So if people listening want to donate, what should they do? Yeah, um, I will have information on my Instagram for sure by the time we get everything set up. So after I started doing this fundraiser, I had such an incredible um, amount of people reach out to me and say, hey, this is something that needs to be ongoing. I'm a nonprofit professional. I'm a nonprofit lawyer. I'm a nonprofit administrator. And I've had I've been able to build this team of people who are ready to turn this in to something more long term. So after this recording, if people are interested in being a part, you can head to my website or head to my Instagram and the link tree and I'll have information. People have been asking how to make reoccurring donations. And so we will have all of that set up. And I'm really, really excited to have this as an ongoing project. Yeah. The thing that I probably like, even like the most about it is that it's just such tangible action. Yeah. Like it's yeah. just an, a thing to do, like give this money. Here's where this money go. Right. Like I think there's, there's a lot of talk I mean, I, I can think specifically like with white folks too, like, well, what do I do? What do I do? Right? Like that, I, I don't know, just, it's like such a tangible action. Yeah. And it's going directly to the people who need it. I love being able to cut out the middleman because in a lot of situations, especially as marginalized people, specifically women of color, as we look for support, whether it's trying to get a scholarship for school or trying to get even governmental support for our everyday living um, that a lot of people of color have to get access to, there's so much we have to constantly prove our, prove our trauma or prove our pain. Like, why do you deserve this? Tell me this long, drawn out, recall all of the bad things that have ever happened to you to make you deserve whatever we're trying to give you. And I am so happy to cut that out, to like Mm -hmm. completely just separate the idea of having to prove your trauma as a way to deserve support. And so I don't, the literally the only thing I'm asking for is who is your therapist? Who do I call? Where do I put money on the books? Because that's really the only thing that matters. And this very grassroots on the ground direct support of women of color who are constantly being, have to experience, you know, this racism, these microaggressions, the systematic racism that happens in the world. There's nothing that they have to prove. And I'm just excited to give the money directly to them and the therapists who are oftentimes women of color to be able to put money towards them as well. And oftentimes people are saying like, oh, well, there's a billion organizations that do this already. Why don't you just give the money to them? And what I've learned is that a lot of the nonprofits, they, they're 
circle of therapists that they offer to the people who come through their programming aren't always people of color, or they don't deal with a specific trauma that a person might need the support that they, they might not offer the support for the type of trauma they've experienced. And so I, I really am finding joy in giving these people a chance to choose the therapist that they want, whoever it is. And we'll put the money on the books because I want them to get exactly what they need and it not be determined by what I or anyone else thinks that they need. It's their own personal agency to recognize, you know, this is a therapist who could really support me and um, being able to put the money right towards that. Yeah. I mean, the, the thread is the same from what you were talking about, about the Friend Care Friday of here's the money, you know you better than anyone else knows you, invest it the yeah. way that you want to, right? That there's something really empowering as opposed to being like, well... I'll help you, but only in these specific ways that I've decided would be best for you. Like that's right. oh, like offensive. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's how a lot of the nonprofit world works. That's definitely how the government support works. And so I'm ready to give people of color agency. Um, as we see in so many instances, specifically in voting, people of color are often making the best decisions for their communities and our country as a whole. And so I'm excited to give them the not even give them, but to to continue the opportunity for them to have the agency to make decisions for themselves. Because obviously, as we said, people know themselves best and what they need. Yeah. I'm so curious what the phone calls have been like with the therapist. So like you're calling up the therapist, like, hey, I've got money for you, like on behalf of this person. What have those reactions been like? <laughs> I actually haven't started to um, distribute yet. We're going to do that just because the money hasn't been withdrawn from the GoFundMe, which the GoFundMe team has been super helpful in ensuring that we have everything we need to make this successful. But I have been able to call around to kind of test to see what, what the conversation should look like and how it will feel like just so we can kind of get into a groove as we're helping so many people. And people have been super receptive and excited. And I'm, I'm like, okay, well, we're getting it all together. We'll be calling to put money on so-and-so's books. And they're really excited because the therapists know how much people need therapy. And they're excited to be able to be part of providing this for so many people. Yeah, that's. I'm really excited for how this is going to unfold and like to watch this grow for you. So yeah, excited. thank you. Thank you. So in addition to your work as an activist, a writer, a lecturer, you are also a student, right, at Columbia? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Can you talk a bit about what you're studying? Um, I'm studying anthropology right now. I'm finishing my undergrad, actually. Everyone always thinks that I'm getting my PhD, but I'm just finishing my bachelor's degree and um, I'm working towards a degree in anthropology. Okay. How'd you make the choice to study anthropology? You know, I've always wanted to study anthropology and I'm starting school again. This isn't my first time at university. Way back when I first graduated high school, I went to a university in Ohio. And I remember my first anthropology class actually taught by a black man, which is so distinct. And I absolutely adored the class. And it was something that even when I left school, I kept coming back to, you know, studying things online or whenever I'd be at a book sale and I'd see a book that touched on anthropology, I'd always pick it up. And I made a promise to myself that I wouldn't go back to school until I went for something that I actually wanted to go for. And um, when I had this opportunity to go back to school, particularly at Columbia, which has a really great reputation, a really great lineage of incredible anthropologists who went through their program, I was very, very excited to be able to declare anthropology as my major because it's exactly what I want to study. It speaks to my career um, as a writer and as a lecturer so much now. I can kind of explore different areas of humanity and pour it into my work. And I'm doing exactly what I promised myself going to school for exactly what I want to study. Yeah, I love that. What's one of the most interesting things that you've learned in school this year? So I'm taking a class right now called Critical Analysis of Social Issues. I think that's what it's called. Something around those. A critical analysis course where we're really looking at different conversations 
around just society. And one of the things that we're looking at is the ways in which whiteness, as in white people, Europeans throughout history, the way that it looks in the academy is that it's always been that white people are the knowers and everything else is to be learned. So looking at the ways in which we have, you know, Oriental studies and anthro even the racist foundations of anthropology, where they were going out to learn what these tribe what these tribes were doing, and that the default of knowledge is whiteness and everything else in the world is to be learned and everyone else is to be discovered. Mm -hmm. And just really decolonizing our idea of academia and education and what is to be studied and why has whiteness, the idea of whiteness, the reality of people who have bought into the idea that their whiteness means something as it, it, to differentiate them from any other people on the planet, just pouring in, or I should say pouring in, kind of diving in to the ways that academia is so colonized and how there's this deep racism really in gaining knowledge and maintaining it within within the academy. And I just absolutely love, as someone who talks about race, looking into the ways that our, even our idea of knowledge and understanding and education, it's deeply colonized and deeply race-based because white people have just been controlling these spaces and they have decided that their existence is the default and everything else is learned in comparison to it. So like we're the normal and everyone else is either less than us or they're tri they're like very savagery or they're very, you know, exotic when in any case, anything can be the norm and things could be exotic compared to it. But we've been so conditioned to believe that whiteness is the default. It's so interesting to hear about like you taking a class that essentially like obviously it's within your major and that subject matter, but it's like critiquing the like even the institution of like academia. That sounds really interesting. Oh, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's, so my, it's, it's amazing to be sitting on Columbia's campus critiquing Columbia. Yeah. I love it. It's <laughs> amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this is a good segue because I I first, like the first work of yours that I, I guess, consumed or found was your Unpacking White Feminism lecture. So I found you through our mutual friend, Holly Whitaker, who was a guest on the podcast way back in season six. And anyone who's been listening for a while knows how much I love Holly and her work around sobriety and how much of a help it was for me in understanding and healing in my own sobriety. So basically like anything she says, I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Like I, I'll look into that. So when she first posted about you and was like, listen to Rachel, learn from Rachel, I immediately went down down the rabbit hole as an obsessive person tends to do um, <laughs> like all of your work, which I have learned so much from and personally benefited from a ton, starting, like I said, with the unpacking white feminism lecture, which I watched online, couldn't attend live. So for folks who are new to your work, I would love for you to share just a quick overview, maybe about what that lecture is about and who it's for. Yeah, so my lecture on packing white feminism is really for anyone who's interested in learning about and critiquing feminism through the lens of race in particular. And what I do in that lecture is I go through four different sections, which include exploring the racist history of feminism and what the original feminists who we learn about, including, you know, Susan B. Anthony and all of the other poster children, uh, women of the feminist movement, a lot of their racist words and actions. So we go through and really look at what this whole movement was actually built on. And then we move it into learning about intersectionality and what that conversation even came from and where it lends to the conversation today. 
And then I talk about the modern manifestations of that racism that we saw in the foundation of the feminist movement. A lot of times people come into conversations about history and they're able to walk away and feel like, oh, I'm so glad we're not like that anymore. But I put a lot of emphasis on the fact that we are like that. And there's a lot more work that still needs to be done to move away from the racist undertone of the feminist movement. And then if you follow me at all, you know that some of my biggest emphasis in my in my writing is for white people in particular to do the work to be actively anti-racist and actively against the racist system that we live in. And so we move into what people can do in order to be a part of the solution as opposed to part of the problem. Yeah. So there's a couple things like phrases and terms that you just mentioned that I think it would be helpful for folks if you would quickly define, if you don't mind, specifically white feminism and um, you said intersectionality. Yeah. So white feminism is basically a feminism that fights for the rights of people based on gender without acknowledging the other intersections of womanhood. And in particular, my work is on the intersection of race and womanhood. And so a lot of feminist action is taking place and benefiting white women, specifically middle-class white women, upper and middle-class white women, without considering a lot of the ways that being a Black woman affects womanhood or, you know, sexuality affects womanhood. And a lot of the major work that has been done in the feminist movement has been solely benefiting white, well, I shouldn't say solely benefiting, was set out to benefit white women of color, white women of a certain social class. And it has kind of, you know, other women have gotten the benefits of the fact that womanhood has progressed from what white women, you know, originally were able to make happen, but it was never, ever pushed out as we are working for women as a whole. And that's something that needs to be addressed because there's so much work that needs to be done on behalf of the other intersections of womanhood besides whiteness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and so that brings us to, you know, uh, intersectional feminism or intersectionality, which obviously it's like, I feel like it's such a buzzword lately, mm-hmm. especially online. I'm sure you've seen the same. So maybe you can talk about, you know, like when you say intersectional feminism, what does that look like? Yeah. So intersectional feminism is just considering the other ways yeah. that people exist at that intersection of womanhood. And the term intersectionality was first coined by a Black woman named Kimberly K- Crenshaw, who um, she is a She's at the Columbia Law School, and this first came out of her study of law and looking at the ways that people needed to be considered, not just for their womanhood or not just for their race, but sometimes there's an intersection of the ways that people are discriminated against. And so that's where it came from originally, and it's been used within the feminist movement in order to consider, like I said, the ways that other people's existence intersects with womanhood and ensuring that what the work that we do, the progress that we work towards isn't only benefiting what America has deemed the default of womanhood of white women, white middle-class women, and really looking at the other ways that people exist as a woman in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Because the truth is that womanhood is not experienced the same by every different woman, right? That it's like the experience of a rich woman is not going to be the same experience as a poor woman. And then you like all of the other intersections you mentioned, race and gender and sexuality. And obviously we could go on and on that it's not going to be the same experience and the same issue in the same like experience of marginalization that happens for one woman versus another woman. Exactly. And that the people that as we're checking our privilege and where we stand in the world of, you know, opportunity, we need to understand where our privilege exists in the world and how we need to use that in order to support the other women who are 
more marginalized are less privileged than we are. Mm -hmm. If we're going to truly stand, if we, if we really are going to be feminists for all women, then we need to be having those considerations. Yeah. This, this idea of being able to hold space for like a both and like that, how a person can be both the oppressed and the oppressor, which I think feels like an uncomfortable truth. But this idea of like, like I can be oppressed in regard to one of my identities, say like as a woman, but that doesn't mean that I'm not also the oppressor or part of like the oppressor group in another way. Like for me, that would be whiteness. Right, right. And that's often a really hard thing for the people who look at my work to understand that just because just because you have experienced some type of oppression doesn't mean that you don't have privilege in another way in which you are part of the oppressive group of another group of people. And even if you aren't actively doing something that would be considered quote unquote oppressive, you are benefiting from the fact that you are not part of that oppressed group. And until the whole thing is dismantled, you will continuously be moving forward as someone who benefits from, in your example, your whiteness, regardless of whether you're actively oppressing people of color, you live in a system where whiteness gives privilege and you will continuously benefit from that, whether you want to or not. This might be a silly question, but why do you think that people feel so defensive about the word privilege? Because I think they know that that if you have privilege, that means someone's oppressed and they don't like the feeling of knowing that they might be part of oppressing another group. And I think that instead of feeling the discomfort or the defensiveness, it should really push people to action to say, wow, I have agency to, con- to possibly help people who the rest of my group in whatever privilege we are aren't. And so I'm hoping that this continued conversation about privilege moves people to action as opposed to defense. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot, especially just in sort of witnessing either my own reactions or other people's reactions to this idea of privilege. And it could be within, you know, race, it could be thin privilege, it could be there's lots of different types of privilege, obviously. And I feel like so much of the defensiveness, it's like expressed in, well, let me tell you all the reasons why my life is hard. So therefore, I'm not privileged, which is sort of missing what privilege means, I think. Right. It totally misses the point because the conversation isn't whether when we're talking about a specific privilege, whether it's been white privilege, it's not that we're saying you haven't had struggle in any other area of your life. We're just saying you've never struggled because of your weight or you've never struggled because of your race. And so when we're talking, especially when we're talking about race, where we're in an entire system where there is an oppression of a particular race, particularly black people, White people can never say, because of my whiteness, I have experienced whatever it is, while I, as a Black woman, can list off a billion things that I've experienced specifically because of my race. And just as much as, yes, white people can't control you know, the fact that they were born white and the fact that this is the system we live in, I too can't control that I was born Black and I'm you know, in an oppressive system where because of my Blackness, I'm experiencing specific things. So instead of kind of arguing over, you know, I couldn't help it. What do you want me to do? I need you, you know, there's a need to take action to make these systems, I guess, not exist in order for everyone to be more safe living in a world where their race isn't something that's going to put them behind or in a negative situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You mentioned before, I think when you were talking about uh, how your lecture touches on the history of the feminist movement and, you know, especially uh, race in that. And you mentioned something about how people like to think like, oh, these are issues of the past, right? Which obviously says a lot about how we are taught, especially as kids, I think in schools, right? About these types of things, like that racism is, you know, it's framed as being an issue of the past, right? When slavery is discussed or anything like that. 
And I feel like when that bubble is burst for white folks, like when we're shown the many, many ways that systemic racism is real and current and not the thing of the history book from third grade or whatever, right? Like that and like the ways that we continue to benefit from white privilege, there's an almost guaranteed expression of guilt that follows. Or like you said, well, what am I supposed to do? This isn't my fault, right? Guilt for that white privilege and then a desire to sort of prove that they're not racist. And I remember something, a resource that I found through you was an article by, I think her name's Sarah Milstein, that five ways white feminists can address our own racism. I can put a link in the show notes, but she Mm. said something in that piece that I think about a lot. She said, specifically talking to white people, quote, even if you do not identify as a racist, racism is baked into you and then it's reinforced by our culture. There's no point in feeling guilty because you're a human and the product of a racist society. Yeah. Like, I, yeah, I think about that a lot, that it's like the guilt is not helping anybody. (laughs) Yeah. And I always, one thing that I say kind of in tandem with that is that racism or yeah, racism is really just a disease of whiteness. Like it's just in the blood of the fact that you were born white and you live in a society in which whiteness is seen as superior or pushed as superior by white people. And so you can either decide to do something to ensure that this type of like sickness isn't continuously passed on generation to generation, or you could just sit with it and say, I'm not going to do anything because I'm mad about it. But regardless of what you do, it's still going to be there. And there's continue, as I say, do the work, there's continuous things that need to be done and understood and learned and pushed forward in order for us to change it. Because until you know, something changes, you're, you know, white people are going to be sitting with that privilege and that, you know, underlying baseline of their understanding of white supremacy and people of color are going to be continuously marginalized and oppressed because of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That idea that you're speaking to that just because something isn't your fault doesn't mean it's not your responsibility. For sure. And I always say until I don't have to deal with the effects of my ancestors' experience in slavery, I am going to continuously push white people to deal with the effects of what their ancestors did. Mm -hmm. That's so well said. So you brought up this phrase, doing the work or do the work a couple of times, which I know is the title of an email series that you put together. Can you talk about that series a little bit? Yeah. So my do the work series is just a really tip of the iceberg push through understanding a lot of the racism in this country. So my equation for allyship is essentially knowledge plus empathy plus action equals allyship. And I try to push my 30-day course is to root that knowledge to say the more that you know about what people of color have gone through in the world, the more that you can really resonate and say, wow, something needs to be done. And then that will push you to action and actually be an ally. So my 30-day course is my attempts to kind of start rooting and seeding a lot of the knowledge that needs to be had for my audience, which is 92% white women at this point. And so really putting down those seeds of knowledge to hopefully grow more allies in the world to support women of color. Yeah, I love that formula that you just shared. It sort of speaks to the difference between actually being an ally versus wanting to like prove that you're an ally on the internet, I think. Oh yeah, there's a lot of performative allies on Instagram. (laughs) So when you say that, can you give some examples of what you mean? Yeah, just people who um, they feel like because they've reposted something that talks about racial issues that that has, you know, branded them as an ally. And I say in all of my teachings, whether it's my lecture or my course, you know, at the end of this, you're not going to get a certificate that says you're an ally. This is a continuous work until this this country changes. So that probably won't be in our lifetime. 
And so there's just this continuous, there's just this continuous work and effort towards maintaining an understanding and maintaining the efforts to say, okay, I'm doing what I need to do both to understand what people are, people different than me are going through and then listening to them to ensure that my action matches up with what their needs are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I appreciate your emphasis on the fact that it's an ongoing thing, right? It's not like, okay, well, here's the little finish line. You did this for two months. Like, here's your cookie. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. There's no cookies. Right. My oven is closed. <laughs> <laughs> I do like cookies, but <laughs> I remember. So when I went through um, that 30 day course, I think it was day two of that series. The title of which was get over yourself. Now <laughs> I super hit home yeah. for me. You posed a couple of questions for white people to ask themselves, like questions that I still think about and like share with friends all the time. It was, I think it was something like, am I willing to do this work regardless of how uncomfortable it'll make me feel? It's like such a simple question, but I think that's the heart of a lot of it. Like you also said, like, do I avoid bringing up important race issues with my family and friends? Cause I'd rather like keep things comfortable. And that's the heart of so mm-hmm. much of what I hear. Yeah, for sure. It's something that I pose in almost every time I speak to a group is that people really need to grapple with what their line of allyship is. So I often tell people, you know, I want you to draw a line and put why you haven't talked to the one person you don't want to talk to about race. And whatever you set on that line, that's your line of allyship. That's where you've decided, oh, it's too hard. Oh, it's too much. And it completely changes your perception of who you are as an ally. And often a lot of allies are conditional. It's conditional on how comfortable you are. It's conditional on how good you feel about it. And so there needs to be this grappling with the realities of how you perceive your actual support. And the truth is, when I ask people who come into a room or who are ready to have this conversation about allyship, you know, I'm asking, why are you here? What do you want to do? And they say, you know, I want to, I want to help protect the black people. I want to ensure that their rights are protected. But then when I ask, who do you not talk to about race or why are you not pushing yourself? It's, you know, often, you know, I don't want to make someone uncomfortable or I don't want to make myself uncomfortable. And in that, in all of those situations, every single response that I get, it's always for the protection of a white person, whether it's you or the person that you don't want to talk to about race. So really in this work, you end up protecting white people in the end because you're worried about their feelings of the actual lives that are being affected on behalf of Black people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think taking it back to sort of an online context or other, you know, female white solo entrepreneurs or creatives or other folks that I've had these conversations with, that there's such a fear of saying the wrong thing or like making a mistake or losing followers. And like, just this idea that you have to be willing to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be willing to make mistakes and you really have to look at what your motive is. If you're out here to be the most popular or the most well-known, there's, there's just so, there's so much that is to lose when it comes to talking about race. But the reality is people of color are losing their lives and whatever word you're using for why you don't want to talk. And usually that word is discomfort or lack of knowledge or scared or fearful. None of that compares to the fear and discomfort and the really life altering effects of if this work isn't done, the lives and the bodies of people of color are at stake. Mm -hmm. So in one of the, I think it was one of the do the work emails, um, or maybe I saw you mention it somewhere else. Like you asked people to really take the phrase, check your privilege, which is said a lot and to take it as an action step. Can you talk a little bit about like what that actually looks like for someone to check their privilege? Ooh, yeah. 
I would say that when you're moving through the world, and especially when I'm speaking to white women about this conversation of privilege, you know, one example is when you walk into a room, maybe it's like a work conference or an industry conference, and you see a panel and it's full of men, they often ask like, wait, why am I sitting here listening to only men talk about something? But they rarely are white women going to say, yeah, I walk into a room and say, why are there only white people on this panel? Even if it is all women, why is it only full of white women? And so I think one of the ways of checking your privilege is when you're walking into spaces and you're looking around, whether it's like, quote unquote, industry leaders, or even something like your book club, (laughs) checking your privilege is saying, wait, wait, now I have the privilege of being completely comfortable because I'm surrounded by people who look and think just like me. I really need to open this space up, whether it's to let more people of color in in order to have, you know, more of a diverse, inclusive experience. Or the fact is, white people aren't like the only smart, insightful people in the world. And you need to bring in people of color who also have these genius ideas and this genius insight that needs to be heard on behalf of the industry that you're in, or even something, like I said, as simple as your book club. And if that is the case, like, why are people of color not feeling invited? Is it because you're not inviting them? Or is it because there's something about this group that makes people of color incredibly uncomfortable? And that's something else people need to grapple with. Yeah, well, and and be willing to listen to that feedback without getting defensive, which I am not always great at. And I think a lot of people aren't always great at. Like, that's, we. I don't know, people like don't want to be wrong. They don't like. I mean, something else too that I think comes up a lot in these conversations is the idea of intentions, right? Well, that wasn't my intention or my intentions are good, which like, I don't know. I know that you've spoken about that a lot, but is there anything about that that you want to say? Yeah. I mean, what I always say, intentions don't erase impact. And so you could have the best of intentions, but whether it's an impact that matters and your intentions doesn't erase the impact. And so the example that I use all the time, you could be walking down the street and if you step on someone's foot, your intention obviously wasn't to step on their foot, but that doesn't change the fact that someone's hurting right now and you don't get to walk away and dismiss their pain because you didn't mean to do it. Right. You would immediately apologize and not. Right. And I don't know why people don't connect that to bigger areas of life. If you step on someone's foot and someone says, ouch, you don't look at them like, are you really hurt? Like prove to me that you're hurt. We do the things that we do in a bigger scale are so absurd. If you look at it in a smaller scale. So if a person of color comes up to you and they say, you've said something racist, you've done something racist, you hurt me. You don't immediately like get offended. You don't look at them with a scratched up face and say, no, I didn't. Or that's not what I meant to do in the same way. If you step on someone's foot, you offer compassion and say, I see that you're hurting. Actually, you can't even see that you've stepped on someone's foot. It's something that you just have to trust when someone tells you that you've, you know, you've hurt them. And so I don't know why we don't do it in other ways and that it's um, really interesting the ways that I see, particularly in my work, white women get defensive about what they intended to do when that really doesn't mean anything when it comes to the person that you've hurt. Well, especially because then that just makes the conversation, like it turns the conversation into like what the intention was as opposed to the actual point, which is the thing that you said or did that was hurtful. Right. And white women, they think that the worst thing that could possibly happen is to be called racist <laughs> or to be yeah. told that they've done something Sorry, racist. I don't mean to laugh. It's just like, it's so, it's so accurate. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're more offended. They are more hurt and offended by the fact that they've been told that they've done something racist than having real concern for the human being that they have hurt. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I think, I feel like I heard you talk about this in another podcast, this idea that like racist, like being called racist or doing something that's racist, like that could like be, a, I don't know if you said it was like a neutral word or that like, it just, it is. Yeah. It's a descriptor. It's, it's just a, descriptor, a descriptor, right? It's not like this, I don't know, like be all end all condemnation. It's, it's the same way that you could 
I'm being really inarticulate Just right like now. Just like you but... tell someone they're talking, you're talking loud. You'd be like, oh, okay. And you would self-assess and say like, okay, let me like lower my voice. And the same way someone's like, you're doing something racist. It's not a, it's not like a diagnosis of a terminal anything. It's just saying you have done something that has affected me on a race-based level. And you need to check it because it's adding to the systematic oppression of this country and how I experience life in this world in my skin. Yeah. And the, so the, the idea of it being a descriptor is so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not a, you know, there's nothing more or less there than for there to be a, to listen, to self-analyze and to like recalibrate in order to do it and then learn from it and move forward. But also white people in this country having this idea of white supremacy, there, there's never been a need to because their lives have never been in danger based on their skin. And so that's where the empathy comes in, where people can't even imagine that they would be brought into a conversation about race because they've never had to deal with it. And now people are being called and held accountable for what they're doing. And mm-hmm. now white people have to figure out how to manage themselves in this cover. And that's where the idea of white fragility comes into play. It's because white people have such a low tolerance for talking about race because they've never had to, that they'd rather get defensive or walk away or say it doesn't exist or say they don't care or that it doesn't matter when it does. And the reason why they have that fragility is because their tolerance for this conversation is so low because they've never had to talk about it, but that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. And now they're being held to task. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's something that you have never been given the language for, you've never had conversations around like, yeah, sure. That's an adjustment. And also there's like plenty of resources out there in which to educate yourself. Yes. And I tell people all the time who say like, and I say, well, why don't you talk about race? And they say, well, it's hard. Like, okay, college was hard. Having a baby was hard. And moving across the country was hard. You do hard things all day, every day. I'm pretty sure you can do this hard thing of grappling with race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that again, like, and I, I've heard you say this too, that there's plenty of resources. There's plenty of folks who you, whose work you can read and watch and follow and like paying attention to who you're following on social media and what's on your bookshelf and all these things are within somebody's control. And it's basic humanity. <laughs> this isn't rocket science. This isn't something you have to go to college for. You know, it's like basic humanity and opening your eyes to what has been done and then acting accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about social media. I'm curious, like what you love and don't love about the fact that so much of your work happens like online. What's that been like for you? Well, I love it because there's so much reach and there's so much community on social media, you know, in the comment section, there's at least on my page, there's very important discourse happening within the comments. There's lots of really meaningful connections happening and people can kind of pull from it. You know, people can be laying in their bed at 2 AM, come across my page and really deep dive into this conversation. It's not like an event where either you show up or you don't, this is something that people can continuously pull from. And I love that. What I don't love about social media is obviously what we all feel about tech-based communication is that often things are lost in translation, but also the fact that there's, you know, there's so many trolls and there's so many people who are just there to start drama. And so, but even in those situations, I've, I've found ways to make them learning experiences for everyone who's involved in the conversation. Overall, I think social media is such an incredible source for this type of conversation. And I often fantasize about what it would be like if, you know, IDB Wells had a Twitter or, (laughs) (laughs) you know, these people who have changed our country in terms of race issues, what what it would look like if they had the same resources that we have. Yeah. I, I like thinking about this kind of stuff too, as like social media is such a great place to like, that's how I found you, for example, right? It's a great yeah. like entrance point for folks, but 
I, I think too, and I know that you think this as well, that then there's like the responsibility of then turning around and taking the work offline too, right? Like not, it's not just hashtags. It's like, okay, having conversations in person and doing stuff within your community and whether that's like race related or anything else that someone's learning about or a type of activism that they want to get into that like our platforms aren't just on social media. Yeah. And that's what I love about touring my lecture, being able to go out and meet people face-to-face, having these conversations. But also, as I say, we get so caught up in the idea of social media being our platform, when really, specifically in this conversation about race, you know, your children are your platform, your husband, your partner, your spouse is your platform, your workplace, your school, your classroom. These are all the platform for which you need to begin having these conversations and exposing the people who you have influence over to these critical conversations. Yeah. I mean, and I think that also goes back to what you were saying before about like actual action and, you know, allyship versus something that's more performative of, okay, maybe no one's going to see you, you know, doing work in your school district, but that's potentially more important than, you know, doing something online. Not to say that online stuff isn't important. Of course it is, but that there's, it's like less sexy. You know what I mean? Like so much of the work of anything is like, it's not sexy. It's like, okay, what's happening in your school district? What's happening in like, you know, state Senate or, you know, your local city council or it's just like not that sexy. Yeah. And you don't get, there's no, there's no, there's not like 500 people to, to like tap you and like you while you're doing something to be like, you're doing good. You know, oftentimes we get such an ego boost from the way that people interact with us online. And so we'd rather post a picture and get that very tangible validation for doing what we're doing. But when you take it offline, there's no, there's no guarantee that people are even going to know or see or be able to appreciate what you're doing. And I think that as people are, as I bring people offline to my lectures, to my workshops, and I'm asking them, you know, what are you doing in your home? And they really have to grapple with, wait, everything I've done has been online. And that's in the comfort. There's so much comfort in behind your screen. You know, what are you doing off the screen for actual, real, you know, people of color, our bodies, our families, our communities? Um, what does that look like when it isn't for show? Yeah. I mean, I think you're bringing up such an interesting point of Like we're so used to the instant gratification that comes from the like validation of doing stuff online that I think this permeates so many different things that it's like, okay, well, who are you when you're not getting like, you know, no one's double tapping your thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's a comfortable question. Um, so in your, obviously you said you've been touring with the lecture and I know that you do other workshops and stuff as well. What are some of the, your favorite questions that you have gotten from people in the audience? (laughs) I wish I had a favorite question, but I always get the same question from every audience. And it's always people asking, you know, how can I make this work easier? And I always say, it's not either you're going to do it or you're not, and you'll figure it out. But yeah, that I always, in every single place I go to, I get some variation of that same question two to three times throughout the night, <laughs> whether it's, how can I talk to my boyfriend? How can I talk to my racist grandmother? How can I talk to the teacher who's not teaching correctly on this idea of race? So I wish I had some type of very innovative, interesting question, but I rarely, really get them. But it just shows to kind of the fragility of the people who are there, even though they're ready to have this conversation they still feel like there needs to be some type of guidebook to talking about race or doing this work when, like I said, we do a million hard things over time in our life and race isn't rocket science. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like you said, comparing it to other hard things, like no one ever did a hard thing like perfectly the first time or maybe perfectly ever, right? Like there's so many other areas of our lives where we give ourselves permission to be a beginner and to make mistakes and to do any of those things. And I think that uh, obviously like feel free to disagree with this, but I feel like that has to come into play too of like, 
well, just try, just start, you know, as opposed to waiting for like, I need someone to tell me the perfect script to say, like you said, to your boyfriend, to your racist grandmother, to whatever, like that doesn't exist. Like no one, there is no handholding. It's like, just start, I guess. Yeah, just start and do it and you'll learn along the way. And people, people often say like their excuse, people like there's different levels of excuses that come from this conversation. They'll say, oh, but like there's lives on the line, but you birthed a child. A whole life was on the line when you didn't have a guidebook for how to be a mother. And so there's, you know, there's, you really have to check yourself on what your excuses are because there really isn't one. And when I tell people, you know, what's your reason why you're not talking to someone and they'll give me a billion things. Like I said, they'll say they're scared or, they're, you know, Tim, or they're like intimidated, but the, the answer is always you. It's just you. It's just, you don't want to. And if you wanted to, you would do it just like in any situation in life. Yeah. I mean, I think as you know, like checking myself on these certain interactions, like sometimes it's because I don't want to be uncomfortable, like you're saying. And sometimes it's because I'm like, well, it's not going to make a difference because this person thinks what they think, right? Like it's almost like a pre-letting yourself off the hook, which maybe is true and maybe not true, but I think, you know, it's worth doing the work anyway. Yeah, for sure. Always. Yeah. Um, so this might be a a strange question or I guess like a, a flip side of the question I asked about, you know, uh, what are your favorite questions that people have asked? What are things that you wish people were asking? Oh, that's a good question. Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's any particular questions because there's like I said, it's this isn't like a the, the topic of race or this understanding isn't necessarily hard. And there's so many resources online. Everything I you know, I'm just an undergrad. It's not like I'm a PhD who's been studying and doing this work forever and I'm pulling from my own personal research to give you this information. Everything I'm teaching, I Googled and I learned and I read a few books. You know, like this isn't a hardcore JSTOR behind a paywall information. Right. So I don't I don't want questions. I yeah. want action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's perfect. I love it. So, I mean, obviously we've bounced around a bunch in this topic. Is there anything that hasn't come up yet that you really wanted to speak to, whether it was something from your own experience that you wanted to share or just like anything, obviously we've touched kind of the surface, but is there anything else that you wanted to share? No, I think one of the most important things and that we touched on is just like what people's platform looks like and the fact that they need to start doing this work within themselves, in their homes, in their workplaces, that it, you know, it all starts, these little ripples will move to waves because we're looking at the way that people voted, the way that people are making decisions, looking at the Colin Kaepernick situation. And it's, we act like it's this big, scary system, but it's made up of all of us individuals. Mm-hmm. And so we all need to do this individual work. Yeah. Yeah. And I really like going back to what you were saying about like assessing your privilege, your platform, and just like, okay, who do I have access to? What spaces am I in? Like what resources do I have? Whether that's time or money or, you know, way back at the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about the therapy fund, like redistribution of wealth. Like there's just lots of different sort of avenues into taking tangible action that folks can take. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Who are you learning from these days? Anyone that you're following that you love their work? Yeah, I learned so much from Brittany Cooper. She, I, she's more on Twitter and I'm not really on Twitter, but um, I read her books. She's a professor and she wrote a book called The Crunk Feminist and it's a black, it's a book on black feminist theory. And I learned so much from her. Um, I'm currently reading her book called... Isn't that funny how you can be reading or listening to something and you're like, this thing is really impactful and I've completely forgotten who it's by. This happens to me too sometimes. Yeah, totally. The book is called Beyond Respectability. Oh, yeah. And I've just learned so much, so much from her. She's, she's written several things. So Brittany Cooper, Brittany Packnett, who's on Instagram. I learned so much from her. Who else do I love learning from? I, I'm actually really deep diving into historical figures, learning from them, reading lectures and letters and even things like sermons and 
books by people, books and pamphlets, how they used to distribute pamphlets and newsletters in the 19th century and the 20th century from Black women who have been doing this work for generations and generations and centuries and centuries. So um, it's not so much people I'm necessarily following on Instagram and Twitter, but literally looking back in history books and learning from people who have been who did this work a long, long time before I ever got started. <laughs> you mean there's valuable things that weren't created in the <laughs> internet age? <laughs> <laughs> Go to a library. <laughs> I know, write books. You can hold them in your hand. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so as we're nearing the end of 2018, I would love for you to share some of your dreams and goals for 2019. Was there anything that feels particularly important to you personally, or what would you love to do in the upcoming year, whether that's personally or professionally or anything that's on your mind? Yeah, I am really excited just to continue lecturing, getting more and more people into spaces to have this conversation. I think there's so much value in bringing this offline. And when a bunch of us get into a space and look around and say, wow, I'm not the only one feeling this way. or I'm not the only one fired up about talking about this. There's so much power in that. And so I'm excited to continue touring this conversation. I may or may not be doing a TED Talk very soon. And so I'm looking forward to um, kind of the impact that that could have in terms of conversations that are being had with people. But basically taking this, continuing to take, one day I hope to just not be on Instagram. I want to just take this all offline and continue to bring this into people's homes and offices and schools and conversations and just continuing to make this feet on the ground instead of kind of like fingers on phones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I love to the sort of theme that's come up a couple of times that you shared that like, this isn't, it, it, it might be hard work, sure, but it's not that complicated, right? This isn't string theory. This isn't like you need a PhD right. to do this work that it's like about basic humanity and it's about having conversations. And I think that that's another sort of defensive mechanism or excuse is making something more complicated than it needs to be. Like, this is too complicated for me, or I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And this idea that you're speaking to, and obviously like so much of the power of your work is just having conversations with folks, right? Like, like we think it has to be like this whole huge thing. And so much of change starts with conversations, like honest conversations between two, two people, right? Like you talk to your mom, you talk to your partner, you talk to, you know, whatever, and just starting to have those conversations uncomfortable as they might be. Like I'm, that's something I'm taking away from everything that you're saying. It's like really a running theme of just have the conversations. Yeah, for sure. Like you said, it's not, it's, it's not complicated. It is hard, but that's part of the work. And none of us, you know, wants to be in this situation. Well, I'm sure there's some people out there who want to be in that continued in this situation, but um, in order us, in order for us to really push for justice, we need to start having these conversations regardless of how uncomfortable, because really for white people, the only thing on the line is their comfort. Yep. You know, there's no, there's no like blood shed involved. (laughs) Literally, it's just, I'm uncomfortable and I don't want to do this. And people need to push past that and push each other past that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's like perfectly blunt and well said that that's what's, yeah, it's what's on the line is your comfort or like, oh, this feels unpleasant to me. It's like too bad, I guess. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So the way that we end these episodes are um, with a series of what we call community questions. So essentially, um, the members of the Patreon community put forth nine kind of random rapid fiery questions that all eight guests of a given season will answer if you're down to answer nine totally unrelated questions. (laughs) Yeah, I'm here. (laughs) So the first question is about self-acceptance, which has been a topic of discussion in our Patreon community lately. And I would love for you to share one thing that you have had to work to accept about yourself. Definitely my body. I have gained weight over time. And the thing that I've realized about myself is that 
when I look in the mirror, I don't have any feelings personally about my body. Like I still feel sexy. I still feel beautiful. It's just when I walk out of the door that I'm wondering what other people are thinking. And so I've really had to accept the fact that I'm allowed to love my body regardless of how other, how society tells me I should feel about my body. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that could be a whole episode and has been a whole episode. Yeah, don't invite time. me to that episode. <laughs> so um, I know we've talked a little bit about some of the like thinkers that you're following, but who's one maybe blogger or podcaster or someone you love on social media who's impacted your thinking this year? Brittany Packnett. I've mentioned her. That's who, that's one of the people I met. Both of them were Brittany's, Brittany Cooper and Brittany Packnett. But Brittany Packnett is currently doing a fellowship at Harvard where she's really deep diving into the conversation about asking the right questions in order to push towards social justice instead of necessarily finding all of the answers. And she's really just opened my mind to how to approach this conversation and it's influenced my teaching so much. Yeah, I love that. I will put links to both of those people in the show notes for sure. What's one place that you would love to visit in the next year and why? I need to get to Italy. I haven't been there yet. I spent some time in Paris this year, but I really just need some gelato. (laughs) I think that that's the best reason to go to a place, right? In my mind, I'm like, I just need to go eat a lot of pasta. So that sounds amazing. Basically, that's where I am at life. I'm in life. Yeah. I mean, there's worse reasons to make a choice than delicious food, right? (laughs) What does self-care look like for you right now? Sleep. Mm, Really like setting a timer on my phone, turning my phone off at 10, having it come back on at 6am and just really allowing myself to not be doing work continuously. And then like just letting myself sleep. (laughs) Do you, this makes me want to ask a follow-up question. Do you have an evening routine? No, I don't necessarily, but I've been, I've been so intentional about my sleep that I'm constantly looking at the clock like, oh, it's almost 1030. I mean, wherever I am right now, I need to get home (laughs) in the next five minutes because I really, I don't have a routine, but I do have a definite intention of being asleep by 1030 and up by six. Yeah. And being able to identify like, oh, the phone is the thing that's probably going to impede that. So it's, you know, again, I feel like another theme of this conversation is like, we try to make things like so complicated. Well, I need to do all these millions of things in order to sleep. Well, it's like, fuck, just turn your phone off. Literally turn your phone off and go to bed. Like maybe get off Instagram and like, you'll be fine. Yeah. I remember I went through a time of where, you know, my excuse for why I needed to keep the phone by the bed was because my phone was my alarm. And I was like, Nicole, they still sell alarm clocks. They're like $5 a target. Go buy an alarm clock leave your phone downstairs in your office and like, you're chill. It's fine. (laughs) I know. I know we do that. Totally. Yeah. So So turning off, getting away from my phone and actually going to sleep. What's one thing that you are objectively pretty bad at that you love to do anyway? Ooh, that's a good one. What am I objectively pretty bad at, but I love to do anyways. Ooh, I know. I love to paint. I have a little watercolor set and I'm so bad at it, but it's so therapeutic and I do it all the time. And I actually like show people the paintings (laughs) and I always expect like, love this with me, but I know it's really bad in all reality. (laughs) But you love doing it. And that's what matters. I love doing it. I think while I'm painting, I think this is a mass, like in my brain, I truly think that I'm creating some sort of like earth shattering art, but then I pick it up and it literally looks like a third grader did it. No offense to third graders. That's me with my like underwear dance parties in my bedroom. Like I look really good while I'm dancing until I'm like, oh no, you actually don't, but it's fine. (laughs) What's one thing that you've quit in your life that maybe felt hard to quit at the time, but wound up being totally the right choice for you? Ooh, this is going to be deep. But when I left my marriage, (laughs) 
I'm here for the deep ones. It doesn't, yeah, these can be as deep or as long as rapid fire questions don't need rapid fire answers. Yeah. I was married from 19 to 23 and at 23, I just decided it was just not a good fit for me. And I knew something, there was something more in me that needed to come out and I wouldn't be able to do it within that marriage. And now here I am. And I'm really glad that I did because I wouldn't have given myself or my work the opportunity to really flourish if I would have stayed in that very comfortable situation. Yeah, obviously, I don't know any of the the details of, of that situation, of course, and I'm not entitled to them. But what you just said about like leaving a comfortable situation, I've been thinking a lot lately about the challenge of walking away from something, whether it's a relationship or a job or anything, something that's good, but not great. Like it's, mm-hmm. you know, other that's than a really a- oppressive situations, <laughs> like it's pretty easy to walk away from something that's shit, right? Like, yeah. like oh, yeah. this is terrible. So, okay. Like whatever else I do is going to be better than this. But if something is good and comfortable and feels safe, yep. like, We've had some conversations in the community too about the idea that like wanting to change is enough of a reason to change. Yeah, I often say, you know, no reason to stay is always a good reason to go. Mm, Yeah, that's okay. I'm going to hold myself back from following that thread (laughs) because I think that that's really brilliant. Which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? My number one required reading for anyone who actually really cares about this work is the book Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Yep. Yeah, that's that's the book that changed so much about how I speak about race, how I view it, my understanding of Black men, my understanding of my own Blackness as a Black woman. His work is just so incredibly well-written and the content is just so life-changing and I recommend it to everyone. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves, a small action to take. What would you love for folks to do? Follow me on Instagram. (laughs) I think that doing that, I am constantly offering resources. I'm constantly directing people to other people who can learn, who you can learn from. I'm constantly giving, you know, reading assignments and, you know, when my lectures show up to places. And so I think following my work, which will hopefully lead you down a rabbit hole to a billion other people's work is a really good first step in starting to have the conversation around race. Yeah. I mean, and I I can't put enough exclamation points behind what you just said. I've (laughs) learned so much and all types of learning. There's definitely some things where I'm like, Ooh, that makes me feel physically uncomfortable within myself. Why? Let's look at that, you know, versus other people to follow or specific books to read or you know, just articles that you link to, you're such an unbelievable source of information. And so, yeah, I will definitely um, put links in the show notes, but what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Is it Instagram? Is that your favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. Instagram is my number one platform where I do most of my work and it's Rachel.Cargill. I also have a website, rachelcargill.com. If anyone wants to contact me via that way, but Instagram is where all of my magic happens. Absolutely. Um, Well, like I said, I will put links to everything and yeah, highly encourage everyone listening to follow you and interact with your work and pay you for your work and all of those wonderful things. Rachel, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I wanted to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam is awesome. He created the music for this show. He makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. 
And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Monique. Hi, Monique. Hey, Nicole. I'm going to ask you some rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? Yes. Hot bring seat. it on. Hot seat time. Uh, my favorite question first, as always, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Okay. I have been totally upset, and this is going to be like a way more intense maybe than you're expecting the answer, but I have been very obsessed with the concept of happiness and or contentment, however you want to flip that coin um, in life in general. And on top of that, how one achieves it or how one comes to terms with the fact that maybe it's not going to be achieved. It's basically this entire like push pull of like of all the different things going on in your life at any given time. Right. And we can, I could speak personally about it too, but like relationship stuff, work stuff, family stuff, friends stuff, like what is this balance that needs to happen for a person, myself in particular, to not feel like I just want to like burn everything down to the ground all the time. And I don't know, I feel like this year in particular has been um, all of this stuff is coming to light because I had a relationship end earlier in the year because I'm sort of out of the honeymoon phase in this job that I'm currently in. And um, I turned 30 this year and there's like all of these, um, there are all of these things that are, are piling up to me being like, well, this is not really where I thought I was going to be or or what I was going to be doing, or this is not like the vision I had for myself and my life and like trying to reconcile that. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. And also is super relatable and could be a whole multi-hour conversation on its own. So yes, I hear you. Oh my God. I know. I know. I was trying to summarize it into like a yeah. short answer. No, I mean, but again, I think that not only is it really relatable, but it's really honest. It's kind of the like, oh, WTF, now what? You know, it's like, yeah. And it's like, am I even, is, is, is <laughs> like, I'm chasing this thing called happiness, but like, number one, what is, what even is this unicorn thing? And number two, does it even exist? And number three, like, is there some other strange thing I should be chasing? Um, and I, we talked about this a little bit before too, but I've been working with Michelle Ward, who I was introduced to, to through this podcast, um, on a, uh, discover your dream business kind of project. And, I personally was like throwing around the word passion all the time. Like I need to find what I'm passionate about. I need to find this like passionate artistic job. She's like, whoa, with the P word, right? Can we settle for just like caring for a little bit? Because it takes the pressure off of you finding the thing to find a thing. And like she said that to me and it's stuck with me a lot over the past couple of weeks. And so I'm just trying to shift my framework a little bit. Yeah. So that I'm not just putting pressure on everything all the time. I love it. When you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? <laughs> what a perfectly relevant question. Um, I, when I was young, wanted to be an artist in like a very blanket sense, but specifically I wanted to be some sort of animator for Disney. Ooh, I like that specific answer. <laughs> yeah. What's been a tough lesson that you have had to learn the hard way? Oh, a tough lesson that I've had to learn the hard way. I think it's related to my word vomit from a minute ago, which is that I keep chasing perfectionistic ideals and a lot of different things and like, Hey, spoiler alert, the world is not actually perfect. Um, so it has been an exercise in me learning that everything in life comes with a duffel bag of bullshit. And the sooner you can open up that duffel bag of bullshit, look inside it and like 
rummage through and assess whether or not that bullshit, which is absolutely always going to be there, is worth throwing the entire thing in the trash, or maybe it's actually fine. Um, the sooner you come to terms with that, the uh, less heartache you give yourself, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. What's something that you would love to get better at in the next year? Something I would love to get better at in the next year, focus. And I've been saying this for the last several years, actually, and I even made it like a New Year's resolution thing a couple of years ago, and then it kind of blew up. But I would really love to, and this is because I used to be better at this thing when I was younger, um, when I was in school in particular, uh, focus was easier for me to come by. And now that I'm, whatever, I'm 30, it's not like I've been out of school for 20 minutes. I've been out of school for like almost a decade now. But the open-endedness of adulthood is on one hand sort of freeing. And on the other hand, it's sort of like terrifying because <laughs> I can do anything that I want, but it also means that I could throw anything I want in the trash can. So, um, lately I've been starting a lot of things and just not finishing them and, um, for better or for worse, right? Because there are some things that are not worth finishing. There are moments where it's, it's, good to walk away from a thing, but I feel like I've been doing that too much lately. And I would really like to just hunker down and finish some shit, honestly, just so I can feel good about finishing shit. Yeah, totally. I've been in that place before. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, like sometimes it doesn't even have to lead down like, you know, some whole big path. It's like, it just feels good to break the cycle or break the pattern. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, last question, what's something that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? something that I've been wishing that people were more open and honest about their feelings, their feelings and like what they're thinking. And at a given time, people censor a lot of the stuff that comes out of their mouth before it comes out. And I occasionally have the opposite problem where I don't filter anything, which gets me in trouble a lot. But, um, and like, not everybody needs to be talking about the ridiculous shit that I talk about all the time. However, it would be nice, particularly in any sort of relationship, be it romantic or friendship or family or even a work relationship, if people were just a little bit more willing to own what they are feeling and what is true for them at any given point. Yeah, I love it. So you are a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you are one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, for which I am super grateful. Can you share why you decided to support the show and maybe what you have recently enjoyed the most about our community? Yes, I love the show for so many reasons, some of which include the fact that I have gone on and followed plenty of your guests after the fact. I have worked with some of them, as we mentioned before. I follow some of them and it's just you, you and this podcast have introduced me to so many different, wonderful, beautiful people and things and offerings that are out there in the world that I am super thankful for that. So of course I wanted to support and thing at number two related to my, what I wish people were more open and honest about, it's just, you don't get very many people in the world that are willing to sit down and dissect things to the level that we dissect things. We, I talk as though I have anything to do with creating this podcast that you um, get into in these podcast episodes. And it's just really nice to sit there and dig in, like, really, really dig in. Even if I'm not involved in the conversation, it's nice like, to hear that there are people out there that are willing to be as self-reflective and um, to dig as deep as these people are willing to do with you. 
which is great. Yeah. I mean, the uh, deep introspection is definitely something that you and I have in common from our very long email chains. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> um, can you share for folks where you live and maybe a good social media handle to follow you? Yeah. Um, so I live uh, right outside Washington, D.C. I work inside Washington, D.C. And um, the best way to get in contact with me is actually through my Instagram, which is my um, sort of my art outlet, uh, which is at Crooked and Beautiful. And your art is so good. And I personally really enjoy it, even if I didn't, even if I didn't like you personally, which I did. I think it's awesome. So I hope that people do check it out. Um, and to everyone listening, oh, you. if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. Honestly, I can't tell you how much the support means to me, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Perhaps we can even record a future outro together just like this one. That would be awesome. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together. 